Good evening, everybody. I am Kyle Bird, and you are listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. I am joined by a couple friends. My usual other co-host, Matt, is not with us um, just because he is on a bit of a podcasting hiatus. But to step in to fill his shoes, I have some good friends that uh, regular listeners will probably know. Um, I have uh, Kevin Derendorf, who uh, people know from the Mazer Patrol blog and podcast and author of the book, Kaiju for Hipsters. Kevin, hello. Hello. Welcome Good back. To talk to everybody again. <laughs> um, and then also a um, friend of mine who uh, people may know uh, who runs the Man uh, or Man Created Dinosaurs blog. Did I get that right? Man Creates Dinosaurs. Yes, yeah. Man, Man Creates Dinosaurs blog. That's, that's Justin Mullis. How you doing, buddy? Good. How you doing, Kyle? Good. And... Uh, I am joined by these guys to interview a very special guest. Uh, We have uh, the prolific writer, Mr. Greg Keyes, with us, um, who people might know from his original works, such as The Age of Unreason, Kingdoms of Thorn and Bone, and others. Also, a lot of media tie-ins. You may see his name on things from Star Wars, The Elder Scrolls, and uh, Independence Day. For relevance of this podcast, of course, um, he has worked in the world of Pacific Rim, and most notably, um, author of the Godzilla King of the Monsters and Godzilla vs. Kong novelizations, and the Godzilla prequel comic, Godzilla Dominion. Say hello, Greg. Hi. Hi, and, and Hi. Th- thank you See so you. much for, uh, for doing this, um, especially over Skype, which you have... Let me know you're not familiar with, but I think... Yeah, not Skype, but I've been using a lot of uh, Zoom, so... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's been it's been the year of Zoom for everybody. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, thank you so much for doing this, and, and I, I think we're going to have a good time. And um, we got a ton of good questions that we're looking forward to asking you for... Uh, for um, uh, so, without further ado... We'll get into the questions, and um, uh, Justin has uh, our first question, so take it away. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, thank you again so much, uh, Greg, for agreeing to talk to us. I'm I'm really oh, curious to yeah I'm really curious to uh, to find out uh, more about you and uh, and your work. I've done I've done some uh, work writing uh, about. Uh, novelizations and specifically the novelization for the original 1933 uh, King Kong. I was sort of fascinated and, and did a research project on that. Um, but uh, to, to start off, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit uh, about yourself. In particular, I noticed uh, when I was uh, looking you up that you, uh, I, I read you had a a background in anthropology. You had degrees from Mississippi State and the University of Georgia, and so I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, uh, what was your field of study in particular involving anthropology, and did you perhaps have a career in academia before you became a writer? Uh, sure, yeah. I majored uh, in anthropology, as you say, and early on that was meant to to be archaeology. So, it, you know, there a couple of kinds of archaeology, but the kind I was interested in is a subfield of anthropology. And so um, I did get a degree in that, and I did do archaeology 
for a couple of years here in the in the southeastern United States. I'm in Savannah at the time. I was in Mississippi. Um, turned out to be a lot like ditch digging for less pay. <laughs> um, and so while well, it was interesting, I went to grad school and I focused more on um, social history and very specifically the mytho- the uh, anthropology of belief and mythology. So what I was studying even more specifically were the, uh, the beliefs, the myths, the legends, the religion of the pre-Columbian uh, and I guess post-Columbian native peoples of the southern United States, the, the, the Choctaw, the, the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, and, and those people. And my never written PhD thesis was on the, the sort of mythological landscape of the modern Choctaw, which is really about the, the, the things that they believe, the supernatural creatures that they believe live on the same landscape that they do, the ones that they encounter now and then, um, the ones that some of them sort of uh, court or talk to to get various favors and power. It's very much alive there, at least it was when I was working on my PhD. Um, so, that, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was going to say, that's, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I think we're going to have a, a really good conversation about that and how probably this ties into some of your work on the, the MonsterVerse novels and the things that I've really enjoyed about them. My academic background is I have my BA and my MA in, in religious studies. So this is mm-hmm. what you're, you're, you're talking my language right now. So Cool. Yeah, and I did have, I guess, a brief academic career in, in that um, I, 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 as I, I guess, pointed out, I didn't really finish my PhD. I did get, I did get my MA. And I was all the dissertation um, and kind of realized I had written a proposal for something that, that really couldn't be done. I, would, I was trying to please a very diverse community uh, uh, committee, and I did, and then realized that I sort of lied to them about what, <laughs> what I could do. So in, in about that time, I was um, also I'd moved to Seattle, where my wife was in grad school, and I'd already published a few novels, and I had to publish... Uh, at least two a year just to keep us afloat out there because she was in school. And that's really when I started doing uh, license work along with my, my own stuff. Um, but yeah, I taught, I taught Anthropology 101 and Honors Anthropology, and I taught um, uh, a class on reconstructing the agriculture of the, the southeastern Native Americans. Um, so I had a good time doing that. No, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I think, Kyle, did yep. you yep. Um, follow up? Yeah. So, Greg, let's go all the way. Let's go back even further. What made you want, decide that you wanted to be an author and, and to, to be a writer and, and write novels? Well, uh, you know, I grew up in, in rural Mississippi and in rural, even more rural, uh, northern Arizona on the, in the Navajo Nation where my dad took a job. Uh, television wasn't really something that was in my life very much at that point, and, uh, or movies. So reading was pretty much it. And I read, uh, you know, I, as soon as I learned to read, I was, my mother read to me before that, and then when I learned to read, I read a lot, and I read constantly. Um, and once I realized that there was a, a job like that, that, that somebody actually got paid to write the stuff that I was reading, uh, I wanted to do it, and, and pretty early on I was reading mostly science fiction and fantasy, and science fact, and mythology. 
So that that pretty much corrects connects directly both with my interest in anthropology and my interest in writing fantasy and science fiction. They both kind of come from a, a similar place in my childhood. Are there any writers that you feel have heavily influenced your work? Oh, man. Uh, tons of them. And it, I mean, the problem is there's so many, I think. Um, but I would, you know, if I had just to name a few, um, I would, I, you, know, you can't, I couldn't leave off Tolkien. Um, Ursula Gwynn was really important to me. Um, but a lot of the science fiction writers of this sort of that golden age, um, uh, like A. E. Van Vaught, and and then later on Larry Niven, uh, Heinlein. Uh, I read mostly actually science fiction growing up, and it, it was accidentally picked up at the library, a copy of um, uh, The Return of the King, and it had this weird like '60s cover on it with lizards and things, and I, I assumed it was science fiction. And, you know, it's the third book in the trilogy, and I picked it up and started reading it. And before I realized that it was, A, not science fiction, and B, the third book in a trilogy, I was actually kind of hooked on it. So uh, from there, I kind of started reading more fantasy, um, even though I continue to write, read science fiction to this day. Um, so, yeah, that I... I really kind of quit reading fantasy and science fiction not long after I became published because partly I guess it was a fear of being derivative, but mostly it was a fear of uh, not a fear, but I didn't have time. You know, I, I was I was in grad school, I was writing novels, and in the reading time I had, I mostly used to do research. So I was reading a lot of fact science fact, a lot of biography, a lot of mythology, tons of mythology, um, and, you know, all the stuff I needed for my academic career, and then um, later on, just purely for inspiration for writing. Okay, well, how did you, uh, so at that point you're writing your own original works, how did, how do you get uh, involved in the world of um, you know, tie-ins to other media, novelizations and prequel books and and things like that. Well, I was in Seattle, and I had written, uh, I had published my first two novels, The Waterborne and The Black God, and I was working on The Age of Unreason, uh, Tetralogy. And uh, at the time, my editor was this um, woman named Veronica Chapman, who was very, very experienced, very smart, and... Um, uh, very, she was easy to work with, but she she was very not, no nonsense. You know, she she was a good editor for me. Um, and they started offering me, I think it was Star Wars first, and I you know love Star Wars. The, that movie, I was about in ninth grade or so when it came out, and it was the movie I had been waiting to see my whole life. So I had nothing against Star Wars, but I was so kind of into writing my own things that I wasn't sure I wanted to get kind of pulled off into that uh and then i got offered babylon 5 which was you know a lesser known property but it was kind of brand new and i was really liking it i'd been binge watching it on television um and they flew me down to burbank and i 
I met Straczynski and we talked about it and I got to see him film an episode and all that. And, you know, it, it really seemed like something that would fit well with what I did already. And so I, I did that and then I was off for Star Wars again. And a couple of people that I really admired um, who, who had already done some Star Wars novels said, yeah, you should go ahead and do it. It's a totally great experience. Um, and I did, and I enjoyed it. It was fine. And, um, you know, from there on, that, that was just kind of the pattern. I guess once, you know, one of the things that, that I think publishers value in somebody who writes tie-ins is, that, you know, one is definitely the ability to meet deadlines. And I guess I sort of had demonstrated I could do that. And another is um, somebody that will take whatever property they're working with as seriously as it needs to be taken, as it should be taken. Um, and I've, you know, I've always, no matter what I'm working on, I'm always trying to do the, the best job I can. Sometimes that's not the job I wish I could do just because there's not always enough time. Sometimes those books have to be written really quickly. Um, but, but it's still, you know, uh, I always try. <laughs> and because of that, I think that they've, they've continued, uh, or different publishers have continued to, to work with me um, in licensed work. So, uh, when when you're when you're dealing with these sort of licensed works, uh, there's kind of the as as opposed to something that's completely uh, completely your own. You're kind of playing in somebody else's sandbox, and you're uh, it, are do you flex sort of the same muscles when you're working on like a Star Wars story where the story is yours in somebody else's world as opposed to when you're uh, adapting another story like a novelization? Well, I didn't do novelizations until relatively recently. Um, but I actually find the process is pretty similar. Um, let me just back up a little bit. Like So so working on a licensed work as opposed to working on my own stuff, you know, um, it's a little like um, being assigned to write a haiku, it, you know, it is what it is. You're you're told what the form is and how it should end up, and and you try to fit the kind of story you want to tell into that format. And it's really, honestly, it's not that hard. And um, the big difference for me is who is looking over my shoulder. So I wrote *The Age of Unreason*, which is set in the, seven, uh, the 18th century, and uh, it's got historical characters in it, like Ben Franklin and Louis the Fourteenth. And so I have when I'm writing that these imaginary historians looking critically, very critically over my shoulder at what I'm writing. And um, very likely none of those famous historians ever read that, but that was who I was imagining, right? So I felt beholden to that, even though I'm writing an alternate history, even kind of a, uh, an alternate uh, physics history, um, I still want to get right what, what should be right. And when I'm working on Star Wars, let's say, well, what's looking over my shoulder there is this this sea of fans who are going to know if I get the right you know, the lightsaber the wrong color, or if Mara Jade acts the wrong way, or and so forth. And it's actually a little more intimidating than the historians. Um, <laughs> I, I but, can see that. <laughs> but there's also a certain amount of feedback. Like when I was working on those books, they actually had kind of a stable of people who read that, that were not professional editors. They were just mega fans who all read the manuscripts, at least in the New Jedi order, and and would weigh in on it. They would say, this is a Star Wars book, or it's not a Star Wars book, or Han would not ever say that, or, you know. And they had 
they, none of mine, but they canceled some books. I mean, they 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 carry enough weight that full of books that the publishers did not publish because these guys said this isn't Star Wars. It doesn't read right. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that that's sort of the most extreme example in a way. Usually, I'm just working with editors and a. Uh, with with Legendary, I'm working with this this creative team, and you know Legendary has a um, uh, a mythology uh, manager, uh, and Toho. I'm trying to remember what they call him. He's a the chief Godzilla officer. So you know there there are people there that that you have to have a conversation with more or less constantly writing something, uh, in order to stay where they want you to be in writing these novels. Um, yeah, you know, that's just part of the process, and it's a little different with every property and you know, every publisher. That's really uh, fascinating. The thing about the the Star Wars novels, I did not uh, I did not know that. Um, uh, so I, my next question though was, um, uh, what's the process like when you when you do books, um, media tie-in books like you did for Pacific Rim or Planet of the Apes, where you're not um, adapting uh, a movie script, but you're having to basically bridge an imaginary gap between uh, installments in a franchise. What's that process like? Right, and that kind of goes to the, your earlier question that I didn't quite answer. Um, the So the movie script thing is, as you would imagine, even though it's kind of often more complicated than you think. Often I've had to work on novelizations and also on um, uh, tie-in books where they wouldn't literally, they wouldn't send me the script. Um, so sometimes I had to, well, in the case of um, Interstellar, for instance, I had to, to go to California and sit in Christopher Nolan's office with the script for four days, but I couldn't have a copy of it. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't use my phone to take pictures of it or anything like that, uh, nor did I meet Christopher Nolan, so I was just in an empty room with the script. Um, Legendary is a lot easier to work with in those regards. But when you're doing a tie-in, so usually, the, usually they have some idea of the ground that they want covered. Sometimes it's very vague. You know, they like, you know, here's what's. Usually, you get the script, for instance, for the next movie, right? So, um, when I was working on um, when I was working on Godzilla versus um, Kong, when I was working on um, Dominion, um, which actually started way, way before the movie came out. Um, I got a script for Godzilla vs. Kong so I could see what I was leading up to, right, and where, where things were going. And the same can be said for any of the Planet of the Apes books. Like, whatever, whatever bridge I was creating, I knew what was on the other side. And I had, so there's usually then kind of a shopping list of things that become obvious, things you have to deal with. And then there, there are things that the studio and the creative team wants you to deal with. And then there are lots of things, many, many things you can't touch at all because they don't want you spoiling the next installment of this, of the, the movies. Right. Um, so you have to work around in my, and you have to work around all that stuff. You can't, um, there are things that would be really cool to deal with. Um, so anyway, the process is that once we have an initial conversation about it, which is often a conference call, and, and then I start proposing outlines. Here's, you know, here's what I want to do. And it'll usually be kind of a short outline or a collection of outlines. When I was working on um, 
the Elder Scrolls books, they wanted, I think, 15 really short paragraph long uh, treatments. Like, here's 15 things I could do. And then they picked two for me to expand into much longer, more detailed outlines. So there's a good bit of that, and there's some back and forth. Um, with Legendary, that back and forth also includes Toho, because they have to, anything that's got to do with Godzilla has to be approved by them. Not Kong, obviously, but Godzilla, yes. Uh, and, um, you know, eventually I, I get an outline good enough, and it could take several back and forths, it could take several rounds. Um, before everybody's happy with whatever's in the, the outline. And then I just start writing. And usually, if I'm lucky, I have a contact person that I can talk to when I hit a snag or have a problem or, or think of something new. Like, wouldn't it be cool if I did this here? And I, th I think the best um, books I've done that, um, that were tie-in books were the ones where I had the, cl the clearest lines of communication for that kind of thing. Um, Babylon 5 was my first, and with that, I literally just could pick up the phone and call uh, Fiona Avery, who was Straczynski's assistant, and, and ask her the question. And then she would go ask him, and he would tell her. Um, with Legendary, I, I usually had access to the mythology manager, uh, often with the, the, the director and the, the writer writers of the scripts. Um, so there's also a process, in other words, when writing it, and then finally, once it's written, then there's kind of an approval process where you know everybody again reads it and says, "Well, okay, this this didn't work like we thought it was going to work, so let's maybe try something else here." Yeah. So it's a lot like making a movie in a way, you know, with all the post-production work and the reshoots and and that kind of thing. And that kind of also brings up the fact that with movies, there often are massive changes to the movie after the script that I've seen. And that affects both novelizations and tie-ins. Um, <clears throat> and, and sometimes it's too late to do anything about it. So there'll be an inconsistency between the tie-in and, and the next movie just because there was some change made to the movie like as the book was going to press. Um, fortunately, that doesn't happen much. Uh, and it bugs me when it does, but, you know, it happens. With... Um with like the Godzilla novelizations, um, you know, I mean, you wrote King of the Monsters and you wrote Godzilla versus Kong. I'm also wondering, like, you didn't write the first one though, which was by Greg Cox. Um, right. Did you read that novel by him, or did you talk to him or anything, or was that just something that you got as like notes? It was like, here's what happened in the last book, and incorporate that in the novelization. Um, so I had, yeah, I got I got Greg's novelization. Uh, he and I actually have I followed him on a couple of things he also did a Planet of the Apes book uh, a novelization that I wrote after him and so he and I are in contact uh, fairly often about things like this because we often work in the same universes um, I, I didn't I guess read because of the time constraints because of the, the speed at which I had to write that book I probably didn't read his book as closely as it could have been read i obviously watched the movie a couple of times um but i i, I think i more skimmed it and looked for things that i really thought needed to be articulated and uh and one last question real quick and now i'm gonna pass things back to uh i think kevin but um i was also just wondering how do you 
um, with the job of writing media tie-ins, is that something where um, do you, you know, I know you mentioned a little bit with your editor with like Babylon 5, but with something like Godzilla, was that something that you went out and uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, tried to get that job or was that something where they came to you? Yeah, that's a really good question. In general, I don't try to get the job. Like Babylon 5, I, I was sitting, the editor on that actually was a guy named Steve Saffle, who's been my editor on a lot of books, Titan, for instance, but at the time he was with Del Rey, and I was writing books for Del Rey, and we were at um, World Fantasy Convention, I think, and we were at the awards ceremony, and Babylon 5 was winning something. I so that's great, that's a great show, I'm glad they won. And he had just acquired the rights to do Babylon 5, which I was not aware of, but he he just checked that off in his mind. And then a couple of weeks later, when he was clear to talk about it, he called me and asked me if I wanted to do it. So I guess I sort of auditioned for that, but I wasn't, um, uh, I didn't realize I was, okay? And I was happy to do it. With the MonsterVerse books, after seeing Kong Skull Island, I called my editor, and that, the one that works at Titan, who does those books, and said, if any of this Hollow Earth stuff comes up again, I want to, you know, and they and they are interested in me doing it, I would like to do it. So, yeah, I very specifically, after, I, I thought, I like Skull Island so much. And I've always been a fan of Kong in particular, and, and also Godzilla, but Kong and I go, like, way back. Um, in fact, the first novelization I ever read was the, was it 76, that Kong? Mm, yeah um and i was i don't know third fourth grade something like that um but um uh so yeah i definitely wanted in on that and um i had just done i guess pacific rim for them which is was also legendary and was this you know not the same editor but um but he put in he put in the word and and so when um the novelization of godzilla king of the monsters came around they they gave me a call Oh, that's really cool. Uh, yeah, we we'll definitely talk more about uh, probably Hollow Earth later on. I'm, I'm going to give the mic back over to Kevin for some questions. Yeah, I, I uh, well, it's it's on the on the topic of Pacific Rim. You know, that's uh, one that when I when I watch the movie, um, uh, watch Uprising. You know, I I see it and I think of all of the stuff from from your novel with the. Jinhai and, and Vic, and it's right. like, oh, that's. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, how did that development happen? How much, how much character were you given to work with, or wh- how much of it was, you know, stuff that's in the series Bible versus, you know, just kind of um, whole whole cloth creation. So th- that was kind of an interesting book, and what I will say about this is that in the original script. All of those characters, all the sort of supporting characters like Jinhai and Vic, had more. They had more. Okay, so um, I, I, there was definitely, in fact, a line in which I can't remember who it was now, but somebody was sort of jeering at Jinhai a little bit for having been the son of famous um, drift pilots <laughs> and, and or Jaeger pilots, and uh, I think that didn't make it into the movie. Um, but it was in the script that I read, you know, and so, um, so the interesting thing about that was that the book was set between the two movies, 
the breach is closed in the first movie. It's, there's no more Titans. I'm not Titans. There's no more uh, Kaiju. Um, and and my book was to take place in the interim. And so the question becomes, well, can I have Kaiju? No, you can't have Kaiju. Okay. Can I have mechs for the mechs to fight? No, you can't. The Jaegers can't fight any other kind of mechs. Can there be a Kaiju frozen in the Antarctic? No, you can't have that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the reason I couldn't have that is because they already knew about Monster X, right? Um, which they didn't tell me, but that became very clear when I later on. I was like, oh, okay, that's why I can't have that. It's the same, you know. Anyway, um, so I, I, I threw out a lot of ideas. And, you know, as you know, if you've read the book, it's mostly flashbacks and um and and training stuff you know and, mm-hmm. and um and it had to be about the the pilots the kids um that was one of the the things they told me that they wanted me to do i'd re- originally i think the first thing i proposed was this sort of hard-boiled detective thing with the character that wasn't going to be in the, the next movie at all um and it got some traction but it ended up you know it was going to be about kaiju cultists largely Mm-hmm. Um, and it was going to be much, much darker. <laughs> and in fact, the 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 original manuscript for the book that I did turn in was originally much, much darker. And um, they essentially, because I'm sure you've noticed, there was a big lightning of tone between those two movies. Sure, yeah. Um, and they're like, you you cannot put these kids in that much jeopardy in your book. Um, so it was a big, a real challenge to write that book because you know I couldn't have. Uh, kaiju i couldn't have mechs i couldn't really put the kids in that much danger um so um anyway <laughs> well uh, with those constraints that was a that was a phenomenal job of thanks because <laughs> it seems like you were kind of writing with a hand tied behind your back there and, and then when i finally saw the movie a lot of the things that that i had used as my way into those characters had just has sort of been removed anyway and so the the kind of what I saw as logical connections to these characters pass, um, yeah. But but on the other hand, you know, you still get their backstories. So I'm just, well, I guess all I'm saying is their backstories are originally predicated on something a little more substantial in the movie. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I, you know, you were talking about differences uh, earlier, and I know that one of the things that was filmed for the movie was. Uh, you know, mentioning that uh, Raleigh Beckett had passed away from cancer, and that's in the novel, but uh, they they had cut it out of the movie to make leave something open for potential se- uh, sequels. And I'm I'm guessing that was just you weren't in the loop on that, or yeah, I, well, that was a question I was asking almost to the last minute. You know, is he really dead? Because I, you know, because I it, I really commit to it in the book, mm-hmm. and at the time, I, everybody was committed to it. You know, it was like, yeah, he's not coming back. Don't worry about it. Um, so it becomes kind of a major thread, you know, especially, you know, um, well, I mean, you know, it's definitely there and I've definitely noticed that the fans are like, wait a minute. Um, but, uh, there was, you know, it was in the script originally that, sure. that, that he was dead. Um, and, um, uh, who knows uh, whether we'll see another one with him anyway. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing him come back. I, I liked him, but you know, I also kind of like the fact that he died. 
<laughs> Even though it probably would have been better if he'd actually died in the in the first movie, but oh well. <clears throat> you uh, so you mentioned that um, you said you go way back with uh, with the character of King Kong, um, and I, I gather you were also a prior um, a fan, perhaps, of the Godzilla series before working on the MonsterVerse books. Uh, do you want to talk about? that at all like what was your um prior experience with both of these characters godzilla and kong well you know as i pointed out my early life uh, there wasn't a lot of film involved okay um in fact the the one the one thing i can remember that was kaiju like that i saw was when i was visiting some relatives they had a television it was on just as the grown-ups were talking and i was probably about five and it was a black and white tv and it was this big giant that was like crushing all these people underfoot and it, i thought it was biblical it looked kind of biblical to me like something from the bible and they killed it by by doing something to, to, to its ankle and what i thought was sand came out and i thought oh it's bleeding sand that's really freaky and it stuck with me my whole life this big gigantic and i mean kaiju size right well it turned out to be jason and the argonauts i don't know if you've seen it oh yeah oh yeah yeah right but and, and it wasn't sand, it was like liquid metal, but I couldn't see that because it was a black and white television. So sand was actually a lot creepier to me than when I saw the liquid metal. And I was in college before I, you know, I was describing them. Maybe somebody said, kind of sounds like Jason the Argonauts, but he wasn't bleeding sand. You know? And so I immediately went out and rented it, and that's what it was. Um, but Kong, I, you know, Kong and also Godzilla, I saw both of those pretty young at like... Uh, on big screens in college, like in, co- in co- my dad worked for for small colleges. He worked for the Navajo Community College. He worked for the Meridian Junior College, and they would have these movie nights. <clears throat> and uh, so I saw the original Kong, you know, the black and white one, and the first Godzilla. And though I'm not sure, you know, who knows what what makes kids get fascinated with things. I was already fascinated with with dinosaurs and it was easy for me to plug Godzilla into that kind of dinosaur sized hole in my head and of course in the first Kong there are also dinosaurs <laughs> so I think it's possible that that the dinosaurs were the in fact my big, big disappointment with the 70s one was that it was like a big snake or something instead of T-Rexes it didn't quite do it for me but um, uh, on the other hand Jessica Lane was in it so <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I don't know. So those were movies that I would I would see when I got a chance to, but it was well into my adult years before I got like cable, you know, or the ability to um, to be in a, a a place big enough where you could see stuff like that as a second run or a third run or you know movies. So Godzilla for a long time was this 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 monster I was kind of chasing. You know, I wanted to know more about him. I wanted to see more movies about him. Um, and then occasionally I would see one of the goofier ones. And I'm like, uh, do I really want to see any more of this? <laughs> um, you know, when you see it all as a piece, it's kind of it's kind of cool to see those differences. But when you see one of the really goofy ones, you're like, uh. <laughs> you know, at least that was my experience at first. Um, but um, yeah, it was it was it was it was for me this sort of exotic thing that came into my life now and then uh, I had a Godzilla it wasn't really an action figure it was a I guess a, an assembled model that I put together when I was pretty young 
Um, and of course, I was a little nitpicky at the time about, well, it kind of looks like a dinosaur, but here's what's wrong with it, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I guess just what walk us through I guess what you would say is maybe um, I guess especially with working in the monsterverse stuff um, what the process of doing these novelizations is like I know you said um, you know pretty much anything Godzilla related uh, has to go through several layers like with Toho um, and um, it seems like at least from the the beginning of the at the front of the king of the monsters book you might have had some interaction with uh michael doherty and the the writers um did you get a chance to uh get in touch with adam wingard for godzilla versus kong at all he was on a conference uh a a zoom call i was on um so in both cases so novelizations vary in terms of what they what the the creative types the studio and the the publisher wants so the publisher in this case titan um you know what they want is is a book of a that you know will appeal to readers that will articulate with the movie but also that will be a certain length right they they don't want a really short tiny nothing book and scripts are short and tiny like from my point of view a script's really small you know it's like twelve thousand words twenty thousand words at most a novel's got to be more like ninety thousand words okay and and that doesn't get filled up just by adding in descriptors or a few thoughts here and there. That really requires um, some new material. And that's also, in my experience, as somebody that grew up reading tie-ins, exactly what most tie-in readers want. They don't want just a, generally speaking, a strict interpretation of the movie. They've seen that, right? So they want stuff that was in the script that didn't make it into the movie. They want ideas that didn't even make it into the script. Um, and uh, details, background on characters, all that stuff, which a, a novel is just better suited to do. Like, when I looked at, when I saw the, what they did with Godzilla versus Kong, I completely understood, I think that the way they stripped it down from what I originally read works really well. I mean, I think it's one mm-hmm. reason it was so, as successful as it was is it did what it needed to do without getting bogged down in, in places. But that wasn't my job, right? That's never my job. My job is, if I can, to add something. But I can't just add random stuff. It has to be stuff we all agree on. So, yeah, Michael, Mike, um, I, I talked to Zach and Mike on a phone call and uh, they were they were like, Go nuts! Like, throw anything, do a thing from Godzilla's point of view, which you know I was told later by one of the execs. He's like, "Yeah, take some of that with a grain of salt. I mean, you can try a chapter from Godzilla's point of view, but bear in mind that that might not fly to him and not like it." Um, but I did it right, and and then they asked me to do a comic that was basically an expansion of that. So clearly, it did work, um, and it was something that one of those two threw out you know something that they had thought about I and mean, they had thought about all these things they, the big problem with any creative project isn't getting ideas it's like whittling those ideas down uh, you know it's deciding what's not going in there and so I find usually when I get to talk to the creative forces behind these things that they have all these ideas all these ways we could go you know one of the obvious ones was with Godzilla vs. Kong was to to talk a little bit about the Sarazawa character 
who, you know, he does his job in the movie, but, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's sure his son. So, I mean, what's up with that? You know, what's going on? Um, and, you know, so everybody thought, for instance, I should explore that. And there were certain things that I wasn't supposed to explore and so forth. But, yeah, there's in the best collaborations like this, you know, there's usually one or more conference calls or Zoom calls. And they're like, I don't know, seven or eight people on the Zoom call um, with for Godzilla versus Kong. And um, and everybody was it was right in the middle. Of, it was in the middle of COVID, of course, and we all had crazy beards and everything. But um, <clears throat> but it, that's for me one of the more fun parts of the of the process. Um, how far uh, do you ever get? I know we we kind of talked about how the scripts change and, and, and things like that. Um, but uh, I guess with Godzilla versus Kong, I, I know, you know, there's lots of stuff that, you know, after the movie came out, you know, we found, oh, this was got cut, this got cut. Um, like, for example, one of the uh, ideas was um, the the harness that is put on Godzilla at some point to use his energy to power Mechagodzilla or, or something adjacent to that was, was were, were some of those ideas that just didn't make the, the final cut completely? Were those things that you ever had interwoven into your book at all? Well, I saw two very different scripts. Okay, so when they, when they first started talking about doing Dominion, um, that was like, I don't know, 20, 2018? I mean, it was not long after... Godzilla King of the Monsters came out and so the script I saw for Godzilla uh, versus Kong at that point was quite different from the, the script I saw later and from the movie and I'm not going to go into I don't think I'm at liberty to go into how different but there were characters and plot lines and and, and things that were not at all the same you know mm-hmm. it was and and then you know there were uh, a good bit of time passed, and then um, I saw. But but I, I did learn what I needed to to, to start working on Dominion because I didn't need to know a lot about what happened in Godzilla vs. Kong. Of course, when I'm going to do the novelization, now I need to see the most up to date script they've got. And because of the pandemic, the movie had been pushed back so much that what I got was a script that was really really close to the final final version. So there wasn't a lot of daylight between that final script I got and the movie. And there was an enormous amount of daylight between that first script I saw and both that final script and the movie. So mm-hmm. most of what is new or different in the novel was not stuff in the script that I included that they cut. Okay. Um, it was mostly stuff we talked about uh, adding, th- you know, things that they some of which may have been in earlier versions of the script and some of which may not have been. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, because your book goes really hard into the Sarazawa stuff. Um, right. Are you able to tell us if that was mostly from you or if that was from one of those uh, scripts? No, that was, that was almost entirely from me. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, with their permission, you know, they, yeah. they said, yeah, you really need to... And then there was some, you know, some talk about well, what is his deal? What it was his relationship with his dad? Um, so, you know, I'm not. It, it didn't entirely come from me, but in terms yeah. of, in terms of what's there, the dialogue, 
the um, the way it's presented, that's pretty much me. Okay, yeah, because I, I, I know he. The idea was supposed to be his, that he was the son, and even the actor. I remember talking about that a little bit in some interviews before the movie came out. But then, it's not really referenced in the movie that he is the the son of Sarazawa. So yeah, I was just kind of wondering what over might have overlapped and and what might um, not have. Um, and well, right, is, right is mentioned in the uh, the King of the Monsters novelization, right? Right, so. right. Yeah, I, I know that That's... was that was a question that we we wanted to bring up too. Is yeah, with with him being mentioned in King of the Monsters, is that one where you knew that information while you were writing that, or were they kind of written concurrently the the two books? They were not written concurrently. They were written quite far apart. Um, what happened there was I'd, I'd written the scene um, from his point of view, you know, when the bomb goes off and all that, when he's with Godzilla. And somebody said, hey, can you add in a bit about this, his son, Ren? And they didn't tell me much more than that. Just basically mention him. Mention that he is thinking about him. Um, and then... Um, so I, at that point, I did not know that Ren was going to be in the next movie, even though I, I guessed it. Uh, but I didn't know what role he would be playing. I didn't know uh, what their relationship was. Um, I just knew that there was going to be a character named Ren that was his son that he would think about just before he died. Mm-hmm. Do you do you ever get t- uh, to look at any maybe rough cuts or maybe previs stuff or say action scenes? Um, so you kind of have an idea of how it's going to play out in the movie and how it how how to maybe match it in the book. So usually not. Okay. So for instance, Godzilla uh, King of the Monsters. I didn't. I saw. Well, I saw the same previews everybody else saw. Okay. I had stills. I had um, artist conceptions. I had a lot of stuff like that, but I never saw the movie or any significant chuck of the movie. What I did have was people that had seen the movie who would read my manuscript and say, oh, yeah, 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 it looks like this, not like that. Because one thing that really changes between a script and a movie is how specific scenes look. Because, you know, the script writer hasn't yet collaborated with the set designer and with the or the director, you know, where, where they make, no, let's do it this way instead of that way, or let's, instead of this happening, let's have that happen. The action sequences in particular are usually quite different from the novels, from the script to the way it ends up in a movie, which is why sometimes you'll read a novelization uh, where that stuff doesn't exactly follow the book. And that's just a limitation of the genre usually. Okay. Um, with, um, with Interstellar, I was on like a third draft of the book at some point, and they're like, you know what? This guy needs to see the movie because he's describing things the way they're describing the script. We changed so much of it. So like at the 11th hour, again, I flew over to Burbank, and I watched a, a screening of the movie, uh, and I had like two weeks to go back and tweak everything and make it conform to what I remembered because again I wasn't allowed to like film it or take pictures or anything 
with Godzilla versus Kong, they told me they were going to send me a reel, and they sent me the whole thing. So with Godzilla versus Kong, they surprised me by I, I, like I'd already written a draft of it. Okay, so that, that followed the script, uh, but a few weeks out, I I got an hour and forty five minutes or two hours. I guess it was two hours, two hour window, and two hours only to watch the the thing beginning to end, which was fantastic. That, that's just never never have I had that 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 benefit before that you know um so i was really able to fine-tune a lot of the the differences between the script and the movie in terms of how things looked and how things played out and even in times in terms of dialogue because there were definitely some dialogue shifts uh between those two things plus it was cool i got to see the movie so i mean Um, i saw it on a laptop which is not the (laughs) ideal (laughs) but um one thing you brought up that uh, I kind of was just wondering about, um, in terms of the freedom you have with things, I know it seems like with story beats and stuff, that you, you have a lo- quite a bit of freedom. With Godzilla, it has to go through uh, several sets of eyes, you know, with the, the Toho approval. Um, with Kong, you know, you said there's really not much trouble. Uh, is that... Um, because my my understanding, which could be completely wrong, Kong, Kong out of any fictional character has like the most convoluted legal rights and intellectual property history. Um, I was I was always kind of assuming that Kong was kind of uh, loaned out from from Universal. It, is it just that um, whoever has their hands in in the Kong name just isn't very hands-on uh i i can't i don't know the answer to that what i what i do know is that there are rules with kong mm-hmm. like, for instance you can't call him king kong um so so but not, and i don't know why okay i was gonna say because <laughs> I, have, I notice in the in the movies well in most kong movies they never really say king kong even the original is just on that Marquee, and then in these movies they don't do it. But then it's merchandised, like right. you know, action figures and books and stuff will say King Kong. So it's it, yeah, it's all very like I said, it's all very convoluted. But but yes, <laughs> carry on. Right, or, or you I get think those. Yeah. I, I think what's missing though is is the the absolute reverence that Toho commands. For Kong, uh, for Godzilla, yeah, it's different. They don't just—I don't honestly—I don't know those all those people there, but uh, there are some people there that that you know Godzilla really is like their treasure, yeah. and there's—they're not going to let him too far out of the envelope. Well, I, I think I think a little bit of that is some—I don't know if I want to call it trauma, but some some—I I definitely think there's something there that probably ties back to the 1998 film I, I wouldn't doubt that at all and i i saw that too and it, you know it was for what it was it was eh, you know it was okay but it was not a i think most people would agree it's not a godzilla movie. yeah um yeah. it's something <laughs> and it had a big monster yeah and it, a bunch of little monsters uh, above it a bunch of 
velociraptors basically but yeah it, it, it um, seems like they're more protective when they've licensed out the character to someone because like if you've seen things like you know shin godzilla or um you know some of the other things toho have put out they they themselves will get pretty wild but it's right. yeah it's i i think it's just when it comes to giving it's like you know it's like giving their kid to a babysitter and it's like you know if I want to feed my kid candy before bed, I will, but I don't trust you to do it. <laughs> that's, kind of a thing, yeah, you know? yeah, that's that's also my my perception. You know, I don't know for a fact exactly what's yeah. going on. But that's how that's the feeling I have about it. And that was particularly true with Dominion, you know, where we're doing something really kind of uh, a little bit different, you know, like treating um, seeing things from his point of view and there was a lot of talk, a lot of discussion about what kinds of things Godzilla feels and doesn't feel, um, and uh, and 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 how he can and can't be represented, and I'm you know I'm happy to follow all, all those rules, um, but they weren't all up front. You know, the, a lot of this was happened as, and then with the with the graphic novel script, that's not a problem because like a movie script, it's not big. You know, it's 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 really easy to change a graphic novel script. It's it can be difficult to change a novel. You know, when you've written 15,000 words about a particular thing and somebody tells you that thing doesn't exist, that can be a problem. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just didn't get that feeling about Kong. I mean, yeah, you, you know, um, there were there were rules, but there are always rules. You know, yeah. like, like in Star Wars, uh, uh, I'm trying to think what the, the, the weirder one was. Um Oh, people don't have souls in Star Wars. You can't talk about souls. <laughs> <laughs> that's very that's very bizarre. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we couldn't talk about souls. We also could not, for for any reason, bring up metachlorians. Um, <laughs> that's also strange. <laughs> I, I think they just realized it was a mistake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's still that's 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 very interesting how even yeah it's very interesting how even the people that own these things have very strange rules um but well so, so with your novelizations um and the things that you've added um i guess specifically with the Godzilla stuff uh are there any additions to the story or characters with either well i guess either king of the monsters or Godzilla versus kong that you feel especially proud of Oh wow! Um, you know, it's often kind of little moments. I uh, and I and there are often moments that nobody else remarks on. So I really liked writing the scene in Godzilla versus the uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, where Serizawa um, says goodbye to um, oh, my brain's malfunctioning now. Um, Vivian. Hmm. Yeah. You know, there's he goes to her room and there he, there's some stuff in there and he kind of you know it's not a big scene it's not a long scene but it's absolutely something I think that he would have done and it needed to be there they had to meet some acknowledgement after she got gobbled up that she was gone yeah and that she had been his companion for a really long time so I like things like that I like little touches like that um and you're talking about mostly the novelizations right mm-hmm. yeah. um. Uh, I really have to think about it. Um, um, 
I mean, I liked fleshing out Ren. I thought that was also something that needed to be done, and I enjoyed doing it. Um, and I really... <laughs> I have to be reined in when it kind of comes to, to sort of the sci- scientific babble. Like when characters start speculating about um, the relationships between Titans and other life forms and the DNA and the Permian period and all that stuff. You know, I, I can really get going on that. And um, some of it had to be cut out of most particularly Godzilla vs. Kong because I, I did a little too much of it. And But, there, but it, at some point I had um, Madison speculating about the, the um, thinking about the uh, skull crawlers and making some connections between them and and other forms of life and the editor now this is not anybody at um, at legendary this is the editor at titan <clears throat> said you know she's just like a 15 year old girl would she really know all this i'm like yes <laughs> yes she would <laughs> i mean if you look at her her history yes absolutely She's not dumb, you know. She she knows this stuff backwards and forwards, and you know, and um, so anything like that, you know. Um, but to, I guess I just I, I'm not thinking of it that way when I'm writing it. Uh, I guess if I went back and read it now, I I might be like, oh yeah, that was cool that what I did right there. But um, usually I don't reread things I've that have been published for quite a while after they've been published because I'm so tired of them, you know. So worn out on them by the time that happens because I've usually been through it at least six times you know before it gets to that point so Uh, so I I guess going to the uh, going back to the King of the Monsters novelization there were uh, some elements that were um, story, story pieces that were in another comic the Godzilla aftershock uh, was was that something that was mandated was there a serious Bible that was kind of going around of like oh here are, here are things that should be is that like Ren Sarazawa where that somebody just says here's here's something that would be fun to throw in or actually that in that together in that case it's really more in that particular case it's really more me um, I was aware that there was a comic and you know I uh, I don't, and, and it kind of depends on the property, but sometimes um, different parts of the, like novels are usually, movies are taken most seriously, and then sometimes novels, and then sometimes comics, like further down the line. So you'll find things often that contradict canon and comics more often than anywhere else, and it's because uh, nobody's paying attention, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that drives me a little crazy. So once I realized that there was a comic, I said, I need to see this comic. And it wasn't yet a comic, they, but the script existed. So I read the script. And I thought, well, there's a bunch of stuff I can include here. There's a bunch of stuff I can reference here. And why wouldn't I? Um, so that's where that comes from. It wasn't something that was mandated. And, and it wasn't even something I'm sure that anybody would have pointed me toward if I hadn't asked for it. I just, you know, I... I was doing research and trying to figure out what was out there, and um, that was there. So, or somebody told me that there was, a comic was being worked on, 
Um, so I didn't get to see the artwork, but I did know, you know, what had happened in it. And the oh. same is true later on. You know, I, I, I made a point, uh, for instance, getting Awakening, just even though that was a little further back. But I'm like, well, if Awakening exists, I need to read that too. Um, and in that case, in the case of these things, um, you know, I did, like I said, just really kind of skim Greg's book, but, um, uh, you know, I wanted to come up to speed as much as I could before I really got into it. So, kudos because uh, nerds like us like continuity. So, well, you know, most most fantasy and science fiction writers are also nerds in the same way. Um, and it's just, it, it kind of depends on, I'm certainly that way about my own stuff. I hate, you know, if I contradict myself three books after the first one, I, you know, and, um, and it's not a deal breaker for me if a franchise does that, but I'd rather they didn't, (laughs) I'd rather it fit. And if I have some role in that, then I'm going to try to make it fit. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, so I, I was also just going to say, I mean, you were talking about how much you uh, enjoyed uh, the, or, the scene in, you wrote in King of the Monsters with Sarazawa um, mourning over Vivian's death. I did appreciate that also in the novelization because I think that the film is actually almost a little too too glib about it. It's like the first time I watched that movie, I didn't even realize she died. It was just like I, at some point Perhaps. I was like... I was like, "What happened to what happened to Sally Hawking?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. We gone. we get that like blink and a miss it and you miss it like shot of like an iPad or something that says she's deceased. Yeah, in the script, of course, it's a little more obvious. You know, they just say, "Snap, she's gone." So you know, um, I knew she was dead uh, without having to figure it out. But yeah, I mean, it, it, that's the that's the kind of thing that a, a book can do that. A movie doesn't even necessarily have to do. I mean, it, you know, it, sometimes um, you can get bogged down in things like that, and I get it. Um, but as a writer, I tend to look for things like, you know, so in, in Godzilla versus Kong, I'm like, okay, after after the last movie, how is it Mark doesn't even know where she is, where Madison is? Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, how how is he letting his teenage daughter... How does he fly to Hong Kong without knowing where she is? Right, right. right. <laughs> so, you know, there's got to be some explanation for that. So, so for that, for instance, I introduced the sister, which we never see, but, you know, there's somebody that's supposed to be watching her or keeping track of her while he does all that. And and so a lot of their situation in Pensacola I invented because I, I thought there needed to be more there, you know. Didn't necessarily need to be in the movie, but when you start asking questions, you, you're like, "There's, there's no way," you know, and and uh, you know, and after she saved the world, basically in the last movie, why is everybody just like dismissing her completely? And this one, and, and so, so to me, some of that required some some tweaking and some explanation. Yeah, I, no, and I think again that. Do a great job of that. I also, like I said, I wanted to really talk about uh, some of the the mythology that you incorporate into these books. And so, in in both of the novelizations for King of the Monsters and Godzilla versus Kong, um, one of the things that you do is you have all of these, uh, you know, really wonderful 
quotes, uh, most of which I'm I'm pretty sure are authentic uh, citations from different myths and legends, you know, kind of, uh, you know, suggesting that perhaps all of human mythology is in some way uh, predicated on our experiences with Godzilla and the other other titans, almost a sort of ancient alien sort of thing, but done with, with uh, you know, kaiju, which I, was something that I really, uh, really loved and really appreciated. Um, and I'm just, I'm curious if that was, again, something that was coming from you or something that you had discussed with Michael Dodery and and the, the screenwriters, because I've, I've noticed with the MonsterVerse starting with Kong Skull Island, and I, I guess in the 2014 Godzilla to an extent as well with like the opening credits and stuff, but, you know, uh, you know, with Kong Skull Island, I know they gave away like a promo poster at New York Comic Con where if you put it under a black light, it had um, that same quote that you use in uh, the King of the Monsters novel from the Epic of Gilgamesh about um, Humbaba, you know, and it's like, you know, no one goes to his forest who would be a fool enough to go there. So, I, I, you know, was that just a synergy thing or how did that work? That was, as far as I know, a coincidence because I, hmm. I had was not aware of that until you just said it. Okay. Uh, I certainly wasn't working on this stuff that early. You know, um, you're, this is, you're saying this is for Skull Island, right? Yeah, that was for Skull so Island. So I would just say that, I, in, in that case, I would just say that um, Gilgamesh is a really logical place to go um, uh, for this kind. I mean, it's, it's the oldest epic we've got written by human beings. Um, it, it's, it's got some really fantastic stuff in it about human relationships with half-gods and gods and monsters. Um, so I, I think in that case, it's, honestly, it's probably just a, a coincidence or like minds, you know, thinking similarly. Um, um, I forget the, what was the, the broader context of your question? Oh, 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 yeah. In, in terms of the, the chapter headings, that was really just me. Uh, if you go back and look at um, my other work, like um, uh, the, the Age of Unreason books, for instance, you'll find chapter headings like that in which I'm quoting people like... Um, Voltaire or Cotton Mather or Newton or Franklin or, you know, basically I'm quoting from historical texts um, about, often about science, you know, or, or about some concept of science or alchemy that figures into what I'm writing. I did the same thing in Kingdoms of Thorn and Bone, except there the quotes are all made up because it's a completely fabricated universe with very little contact with, with our own world. Um, and so it was just something I kind of carried over into to um, the Godzilla King of the Monsters. And, and one reason I wanted to do it was because there is, like you said, most of it is real. You know, it's mostly from real accounts, real myths, real legends. Um, and, you know, I think it just kind of serves to to make everything feel a little more real, like you said, you know, like it, 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 and it, and also that's just what interests me. I mean, that, that's what I study as an anthropologist. Um, and it's, it's what brought me, you know, uh, these gigantic creatures that the Navajo used, you know, believe created the landscape that they live on was something I was, you know, with me when I was really young. <laughs> 
um, the, the belief that that mountain over there, that lava flow was created by such and such a monster when the hero twins slew him. You know, this is, you know, and then later when I was working with the Choctaw, all of their landscape, you know, is the result of some struggle in the past between supernatural beings. So that's just how I think, you know, in terms of when I, I'm brought, when I come to this kind of thing. And the, there's so much out there. There's so much rich mythology that that nobody often looks at. I mean, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh would be sort of one of the obvious ones, you know, because it's part of the Western tradition, I guess I would say. But um, to look farther afield, you know, into accounts from the Philippines or uh, the Pacific Islands or uh, um, Papua New Guinea, you know, um, you don't see a lot of that. So it's, it's kind of fun for me to, to, to articulate this fictional universe as much as possible with the, the one that we're all actually living in. Uh, I was, I was, no, I was saying uh, to Greg, um, I, this, that stuff was great. I really, um, I really liked all of that. And, and actually I was wondering as an aside, almost, um, are you familiar with uh, the work of Adrian Mayer? That, that name doesn't ring a bell, actually. Okay, she's a she's a Stanford uh, folklorist. She wrote, uh, she got really famous in like the late '90s, early 2000s. She wrote a book called uh, "The First Fossil Hunters," where she argued that a lot of Greek and Roman mythology was based off of ancient people coming across uh, the bones of uh, Pleistocene megafauna, and then she followed it up with a sequel. Um, of sorts called Fossil Legends of the First Americans, where she makes the same arguments about indigenous people to the Americas. Um, yeah, so. I think I haven't read that. I mean, that, that was that at that point I was out of academia, but I would right. definitely, I would definitely agree that that's part of what's going on. I mean, I think it's 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 very reasonable to say, for instance, that that Griffin's probably had something to do with the Ceratopsian skeletons that were coming out of the Gobi Desert. Um, you know, these big quadruped things with beaks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the, certainly those have to be explained. And um, and even just in, in, the, in the, the mythology and folklore that I've um, studied, I can see the... I mean, the, the Inuit, you know, the, the people that are often called Eskimo, they've got legends about mammoths. And they're not legends about mammoths that as big hairy um, as big hairy elephant like things they're more like what would happen if the bones of mammoths came up out of the ice and started being dangerous you know so it's it's hard to live on a landscape like that especially a desert landscape like the southwest or wherever and not not see those things and wonder about them I mean even you know I mean I, 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 I as a kid, I was also a fossil hunter, and it's not that hard in a lot of places to find them. I mean, or start wondering how come there are seashells here, 600 feet above sea level in Mississippi. You know, so there are a lot of priests. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I, I think she's right about that. Yeah, um, yeah. Her, both of her books are really interesting on on fossils, and also you mentioned your connect your your connection to Jason. And the Argonauts. I know her most recent book is called Gods and Robots, and she has a whole chapter just on that figure of, of Talos, the Iron Giant. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll have to check that out, though. That sounds like the kind of thing I would read. So. Yeah. Um, 
also, I wanted to, to ask um, along this, these same lines. Uh, so in the King of the Monsters novelization, you have, um, you know, another place where you really go into this is, um, I think, one of the sort of standout chapters is chapter 13, where you really elaborate on, uh, you know, the, that what's a very brief scene in the movie of all the Titans sort of waking up. And I really... Um, you know, enjoyed you know some of the the detail that you went in the, into that. Some of, and and I'm still not even clear. Like some of it, what was made up, and what wasn't. Like you connect Behemoth to the map in Guare, which I'm familiar with. But then you have that great stuff in there too about uh, the one uh, Titan in Munich, where it's like you got the guy telling his this, this girl he's trying to impress, you know, it's like my grandfather told me that there used to be a village here and then he went away and he came back and the village was gone and there was this mountain. Yeah. yeah. Like all that stuff is, is fantastic. Did you make up that, that stuff about the uh, mountain in Munich? I did make that up. Um, okay. I mean, it, it yeah, it just, it just sounded like something somebody was, you know, would say to a girl he was trying to get with, but, um, <laughs> uh, and, and which might, his grandfather might or might not have told him. Um, yeah, those were fun to write. They're, they're, and in fact, uh, and everybody liked, you know, like the, the people legendary liked them and the, my publisher liked them. I actually wrote more that ended up in there because it was just too much. I mean, even, even, Though I like writing, loved writing those sequences, and I like how most of them turned, how all of them turned out actually. Um, uh, even when I go went back and read it the last time, I was like, "Is, is there too much of this?" You know, because it it does stall the the greater action in the movie. Um, and uh, so there was one in particular. There was one with um, Ed Anger Watt with um, Typhon that we just ended up cutting. Because it was just slightly, slightly not as good as the other ones, even though I had a real soft spot for it. So I'm a little sad about that. But I, I did ended up agreeing that one of them needed to go, and it was it was probably the one. So you um you you do devote though um, outside of just chapter thirteen, you devote a lot of time. Uh, to Mokele Mamembe. Is that one that you were just particularly interested in? You know, I was actually more interested in the, the human character. Okay. I, I really kind of wanted to work on her. <laughs> so uh, I would say, I like I think Mokele Mamembe is pretty cool. <laughs> um, but it was more when I started writing that character, I thought, well, one of these I'm going to make more of a through line. And. Um, and I'm gonna, we're going to sort of see this action developing. And it was an interesting place that I think a lot of people aren't necessarily all that familiar with, right? Um, and, uh, you know, the character is Navajo, which, you know, is something that I, you know, it's not that there are no Navajo characters in literature. There are a number of them, but, you know, there's, there's room for more because there's not that many. And... You know, and also she's she's a woman in the military, kind of at a certain age, and so in that case, I was really just more interested in in her. <laughs> That's why I made that one a through line. Um, it could, I guess, I could have done any of them like that, um, but I, I I just picked one to to, to be more than you know a, a short chapter. Yeah, I, I I can I can definitely I can definitely see that. I mean, and also just, you know, I mean, kudos on the description for, for Mokele Momembe 
too. Um, you know, I mean, I've I've gone, I've done a lot of research on that particular uh, creature because it really interests me. And um, you know, I've gone back and read like Carl Hagenbach's original account of you know what he heard from the the people in in Rhodesia and stuff. You know, their their stories about it. And you know, I mean, the thing that you get so much in sort of cryptozoological popular culture is just oh mokele mbembe is a, it's a, a dinosaur yeah, it's a brontosaur and, yeah and it's, it's <laughs> not that's not what carl yeah. hagenbach described at all so yeah and, and in the case of that one that was one that they had not um i actually had to, a lot to do with the way that one ended up uh, a lot of the other ones um had well obviously the ones that you see in the movie you know are are, are described or I had visuals for them, but and most of the the titans that haven't been in anything yet, uh, and an uh, example would be the one that was in Dominion, um, Tiamat. There was there were already artist representations of her. There was already some discussion about what she could do, what her powers were, and all that. Um, but that one, they, they nobody had really worked out, you know, what it looked like or what it could do. So that one was it was fun in that in that sense. Yeah, it was. was was doing the research, reading about it, and trying to figure out what have we got here, you know. And in some cases, you know, the Titans, like I would get say Scylla, for instance, there's not much resemblance there between Scylla and the Greek antecedent, right? right. Um, but but sometimes there is, and, and, and that was fun. But yeah, I agree. And I was, when I was really young, like when I was haunting the libraries, you know, when I was a kid, when I was like, second third fourth grade i was huge into the crypto stuff you know i read all the loch ness monsters books i read those where you know you've got brontosaurus in africa um so i was already aware of those kind of representations and and sort of like you when i started digging deeper on that one i was like okay this is not what we're dealing with here you know so yeah and i i think along those lines um kevin you said you also had a, a question about one of the titans yeah, it just you know because Nakika, I guess, has a bit of a of a novel through line from first showing up in the King of the Monsters novelization and then making it into Dominion. And is that is that another one that you have a an attachment to? Yeah, I do have an attachment to Nakika, which was originally called um, uh, the Kraken. Kraken, yeah, this Kraken, yeah. Um, which I want to say. There was an earlier draft of the the map of all the different places where the Titans were contained, and there was one out in the Indian Ocean that was labeled Kraken, which they eventually got rid of. Like they eventually, but what we decided because I was like after I wrote that chapter with with it in it, um, everybody liked it. Like everybody's like, well, we don't want to throw this chapter away, so let's just say it's like an off the book. <laughs> it's like this one's off book even for monarch like this one's not registered um which was fine with me and then we ended up uh you know nakika's a real uh, god in the kiribati islands um in micronesia so uh and it is also you know octopus like so um yeah that one was a lot of fun and even though it's one of the shorter chapters that was a lot of fun to write yeah, I, I dig it, and, and you know, reading it in the novel and then then seeing it in the comic is, uh, uh, 
it's it's a it's a neat experience kind of imagine it and then you sort of see what it becomes within the artist's interpretation right and for me too i did not see any of the finished art i didn't see any of the art in progress you know i in in writing the script i wrote uh descriptions i i wrote what i was seeing in my head uh but then what drew did with some of that stuff you know is way better than what i thought of you know um or what i described um and uh it's it that's really and it's the first graphic novel i've done so it's aside from covers which i've seen before where people interpret my scenes or my characters on covers that was that's always been kind of cool but with the graphic novel is cool times you know 80 pages or whatever it's it's you know every frame i'm like ah wow that's interesting what he did there and i almost uh 100 agree with everything he did so but it's yeah it's really interesting to especially when you think something up and then see what somebody else does with it it's uh can be really cool so with with the the graphic novel you wrote it and then they draw to accommodate what you wrote yeah, it's, so writing a graphic novel is like writing a movie script, sort of, and there's it's a slightly different format. So, mm-hmm. so you write first, you, you break it down panel by panel, like page by page and panel by panel. So I'll say page one, panel one, and I'll usually give some kind of notice of how how big this panel is. Is it the whole page? Is it, you know, or are there three panels on the page? And um, we'll talk about what we see in the panel. Um, give a little bit of information about um, where things are coming from and where they're going, if there's any kind of motion that needs to be in- indicated. Um, but I'll describe what we see, and then then I'll write a caption, which is you know the text that appears in the panel. And there's no there's there would be dialogue in a normal di- graphic novel. There's no dialogue in this one, right? So that would be a, a, a third thing. And then there's also the sort of sound effects like kakrang or kachang or whatever, uh, and and the artist essentially translates all that into image. Um, so and and I you know I also include visual assets just in case the artist doesn't know what I'm talking about. So if I say, well this thing looks kind of like a dunkleosteus, then I give them a picture of a dunkleosteus, mm-hmm. or um, you know if uh, the the first the very first part of the Dominion is actually set here in Savannah. Um, there actually is an, an A-bomb, a or H, I think it's an A-bomb, off the coast in the water there that they dropped by accident in the 50s, which is what Scylla is going after in the first part of Dominion. Um, and there's some other things, like there's these big liquid natural gas tanks that Godzilla eventually pushes her into and they explode. Well, those are all here. You know, that, that really exists. So I went out and took pictures of them and so he would have that to to go by but also scale like you know um how big is godzilla con- con- compared to a container ship right so i worked out the scale on some of that stuff and sent it to him so he wouldn't have to to look it up um but um okay but you know in a, in a book i get to describe things yeah and you the and you the reader get to interpret how i describe them like you read my words and you you build an image in your head with a comic i'm really just communicating with one person and that is the artist and you know and then the artist represents things and, and, and drew didn't always do exactly what i said he 
you know, but very often I would also include a note. Here's what I think, but if the artist has a better idea, and you know, an artist is an artist, they often have better ideas, mm-hmm. especially once when they get into it, you know. So, <clears throat> um, with the novelizations, it seems like a lot of dialogue is the same dialogue that is in the movie as well. Is that um, a requirement to have to adhere a certain amount to the dialogue, or is that uh, a choice that you make? I think it's sort of both. I guess, for one thing, it's an assumption on my part that that readers are going to expect that the dialogue that appears in the movie will also appear in the book in a very similar form. But I also feel like that doesn't mean I can't add to that conversation, to that conversation, right? So sometimes I'll take the dialogue as it already exists, and then I'll insert another conversation that we can imagine was just cut from the script, right? Or was cut in post-production from the movie. Um, and and that, that was something that was okay. In other words, I said, can I do this? And they're like, yeah, yeah, and if it doesn't work, we'll tell you. Um, but um, I, you know, I, I, I think the stuff that's in the movie, I want to get as close to it as possible, and then I want to add things. Um, if that makes any sense. And if if it's in the movie, it, it in my opinion, it probably should also be in the novelization. Mm-hmm. So. <clears throat> So uh, in the in the Godzilla versus Kong novelization, I was really impressed by the way you um, sort of frame things from Gia's perspective. Uh, and I know that you have a bunch of experience with different uh, different cultures, you know, through your uh, through your research work. But I'm I'm wondering also if you've had a you know experience um, talking with with deaf people and sort of getting their perspective on on how certain aspects of the world are uh, perhaps different from how they're observed by uh, somebody with hearing? Uh, unfortunately, no. I mean, it probably would have been better if I had had that, had that, that sort of resource, but I, you know, I couldn't think of anybody to talk to, honestly. And at, at a certain point, there's, that, that, there's not that much time to find somebody. Um, so while that probably would have made things a lot better, I unfortunately did not do that. Well, it came off as, as authentic to me. Uh, so. Well, you know, it's, it's, to a certain extent, it's just me trying to figure it out, you know. Um, sure. And, and, you know, I did read, read some things that had been written by people that were hearing impaired and that kind of thing. But in, in terms of having actually somebody to talk to, I mean, if I can find somebody to talk to that has expertise, I often do. So, for instance, when I was working on the first Planet of the Apes tie-in, there's all this stuff about how apes are treated um, uh, when they're being, especially language apes, or when they're being experimented on, when they're being taught to sign, just kind of the, some of the crap that some of these apes have um, have gone through. I've got two really good friends who have spent huge chunks of their lives as primatologists working with apes that have ended up in their care after having been you know, abused in movies and uh, experience. So in that case, I actually had people to talk to who could really, really fill me in a really visceral way on, and, and you know, uh, what I was 
a subject I didn't know that much about. Um, and that's always helpful. But in this case, yeah, unfortunately, no. <clears throat> um, so I did have uh, um, another another couple mythology-related questions. You mentioned earlier that what got you uh, interested in writing books for the MonsterVerse was when you saw Kong Skull Island and they introduced this element of uh, the Hollow Earth, which is something that I also really enjoy in uh, in the MonsterVerse movies. Takes me back to like Jules Verne and Edgar Rice Burroughs and stuff. Um, what was what was your connection? What was it about specifically that Hollow Earth element that made you say I, I have to get involved with this? Well, it, it, the same thing. I mean, I. I, I have always really enjoyed, you know, growing up, I read, as you said, Jules Verne, I read uh, the Blue Star books. I I also read, as I said earlier, a lot of the kind of cryptozoology stuff that was being written in the 50s and 60s and the 70s. And even at that point, there were still people speculating that there really might be this hollow. The, the idea that there might, for me, okay, the idea that there might be anywhere on Earth there were still dinosaurs was like the holy grail mm. and you know when i read when i reached a certain age you know and i um you know became more versed in science and anthropology and all that i started all that starts stuff kind of started falling apart for me as as science but but you, know, you can still have the fantasy right. and and the fantasy of this whole other world inside the earth you know this this hollow earth is pretty cool one and I had spent some time earlier um, just on my own trying to think of a way to justify writing books about a hollow earth, right? And the problem is the, the, the math wasn't working out for me. And I'm not quite sure why that was a problem because I write fantasy, but, <laughs> but it was a problem. And then when I see these people doing it in the movies, I'm like, okay, well, I can just write for them. <laughs> and then, you know, the stuff that I can't explain, people won't blame me for. So, um, uh, you know, they already had sort of this whole hollow earth idea worked out and, um, and it was kind of ready made with a little bit like being asked to write for police star. Right. Right. Uh, which I guess I probably could anyway, since it's public domain by now, but, um, anyway, um, but yeah, I just always been fascinated with that and like refugia, you know, like the Tepwees in South America, what's up there. And, and you know, as as the as the decades wore on, you know that all that stuff became less and less likely, and more and more, you know, pushed to the fringes. Um, but it was believable to me as a kid. It's completely believable. So, yeah, being being here in Ohio, I always got a kick in uh, in your books whenever you had a quote from uh, John Cleve Sims, since he was he right, was from right. O- yeah, he's from Ohio, and I don't know if you've been to. Uh, by any chance been to like his grave but you know his uh you know his uh, son built him a uh, a tombstone that has a little model of his hollow earth on top of it so oh that's cool yeah where's uh, so that you can't get um it is i'd have to get you like the exact location i don't remember off the top of my head it's near miami ohio actually okay it's not too far from not too far from there where he's buried and yeah it's just in a regular sort of public cemetery though his grave is is actually like uh uh cordoned off it's got a fence around it and stuff because i guess they had money or whatever you know mm. and they didn't want that 
being vandalized by some jealous flat earthers or something. Gotcha. Um, but also on the subject of the, the Hollow Earth stuff, so in Godzilla versus Kong, you have this great bit, which is also not in the, the film, where uh, Jaya tells, um, tells this story that she remembers of, from the Iwi um, about you know when Godzilla... Um, uh, presumably Godzilla was first kind of born in the hollow earth. Uh, you talk about this monster, Zozala Halawa, if I'm saying that at all right, right. who like, right. swallowed yeah. a star. And and presumably that is, of course, supposed to be uh, Godzilla. And so I was just wondering what was behind the creation of that, and was that something that you had to at all like sell Toho on? Well, that was... That was really just me spitballing about Iwi mythology and how they might conceive of something like um, Godzilla. And, you know, I think you probably maybe have noticed that we were pretty careful not to ever say, use the word species in relation right. to Godzilla. Like, they're Godzilla-like things. There are things that look like Godzilla, but we never go quite so far as to say there's a species that is Godzilla. Uh, and that, that was... Um, you know, just kind of one of the constraints. It's one of the ways that we're not supposed to think about Godzilla, which is not true of Kong. We talk about Kong species quite a bit in the book, right? Um, so, so her myth is just me thinking about all the myths I already know, okay? And um, and how much of it is true? You know, uh, you know, I'm not going to say, or maybe I don't even know, but. Um, it, it wasn't so much something that I got permission to do. It was something I knew they would cut out if it wasn't okay. Gotcha. Does that make sense? No, so that, that doesn't, sense. that obviously doesn't literally mean some, you know, prior iteration of Godzilla literally swallowed a star or something like that. It's just more the kind of explanation you would find in a, a myth about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it could be true. Could could not be true at all, and that's that's kind of a fun thing with playing with that kind of stuff is that it's not really a um, it's not an assertion of canon. It's just uh, a story that may or may not be true. Just like there's another there's there's a story from a, a, a new and that which I also made up. It's one of the few that I actually just made up in um, Godzilla King of the Monsters, where there's this this guy from somewhere in New Guinea talking about Ghidorah, Ghidorah coming from a star yeah, and, be, yeah. and being like a younger brother. And I've seen a lot kind of made of that, like, oh, Ghidorah's got, another, got a brother. And well, honestly, what I was thinking when I wrote that was, no, this guy is from the kind of society where if you're a younger brother, you have to go find territory somewhere else. Like your brother's going to inherit your territory, so you've got to go off. And so for me, it was just how would this tribesman see the arrival of this monster because and we tend to see things around you know the, the Greek gods are basically a human family that's really dysfunctional and really powerful and that's often how people see the gods and monsters in their mythologies and so it's not a, a statement of canon that um, Gira has a, a brother or that he came from a star it's just what this guy thinks <clears throat> Right, yeah, I didn't. I, I, that does not surprise me, knowing this fandom. But at the same time, it's like, um, yeah, I think that, that somebody does. Somebody's reading mythology too literally. Um, yeah, and that's and that's okay because people do that. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, people read mythology too literally very often. And, uh, you know, you know, but I often am in the position now, you know, when people find me on social media saying, well, you have to bear in mind to take any of that kind of stuff with a grain of salt. Maybe it's real, maybe it's not. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, and a lot of it, frankly, I don't know. I mean, they're not, you know, they tell me what I need to know to write the books and that's, you know, or what I ask. Speaking of, of that idea of, you know, the, the people who tell you what you need to know, my, my last question on this this topic was, you mentioned a couple times uh, dealing with someone at Legendary who was their mythology manager, and in, in the King of the Monster novelization in the back, you, you identify this person as, as George II, and, and mm-hmm. we're kind of curious, what is, what, is, what is his job exactly? As you Well, he, I mean, he doesn't, he's, he's moved on since then. He wasn't uh, any longer in the mythology manager when I was working um, on Godzilla versus Kong. Um, I mean, it, it's I guess it's there in the title. I mean, he, he and he was also the mythology manager not just for the MonsterVerse but also for um, Pacific Rim. So he's the person that that kind of collates. He's he's. You keep asking me about a Bible. There is no Bible. It's these people. Okay. It's, it's the mythology manager and it's the creative team, the mythology team. They also have, and like he manages that team. I guess that's the best way of putting it. And then at Toho, they have the chief Godzilla officer, and presumably, since he's an officer, he also has a team. So it's really these these people in these groups that kind of keep things straight. Not that nothing's written down. There's plenty of stuff. You know, there's plenty of depictions of the Titans and and uh, descriptions of how big they are and that kind of thing. Um, uh, when you need to know that, but um, and then and then they're also there to make judgment calls. So sometimes I'll ask a question. And they're like, you know, let's discuss that. And so they go make the decision. You know, if it's something that they hadn't decided already, then they go make the decision, and then it gets printed on a tablet someplace in you know legendary, and, uh, and then we move on from there. So, uh, but in terms of what is list of his duties are I, you know i don't know <laughs> okay yeah no that's fair yeah we're, we're probably we, we've talked about probably trying to reach out to him too at some point i'm just really curious about you know like who behind the scenes gets to like make those kinds of decisions or like brings bring certain people in and that kind of stuff i don't know if you saw when like the blu-ray came out for king of the monsters one of the bonus features they had on there was an interview with uh, you know Lauren Coleman, who's like the leading living cryptozoologist, and I, mm-hmm. I talked to Lauren Coleman, and I was like, "Who at Legendary, you know, thought that they needed to call you and have you sit down and talk about a science fiction movie and how it actually relates to like looking for Bigfoot?" And and he told me, "I have no idea." He said, "I just got a phone call, and they offered to." pay me and they just said they were big fans of cryptozoology so I, but i'm still like that has to be somebody's decision so yeah and for a long time that probably would have been george it, it mm. could have also been somebody a little bit higher up um you know in the you know the sort of the, the division um that's responsible for um books and especially for, you know so legendary does their, does their own graphic novels um the the books the the tie-ins and the um, well I guess the novelizations are farmed out to a different publisher that publishes all kinds of things Titan um, but the 
the legendary has its own publishing arm, and that's completely not not completely self-contained, but it's slightly apart from the, the studio and the rest of it. Um, but they all also answer to, I guess, the whoever the mythology manager is and whoever the mythology team is. And then beyond that, I guess you've got vice presidents that weigh in um, on on things. But yeah, they, I mean, they they've been very. Um, I, I think that's one reason I've enjoyed working with them, and maybe one reason they keep using me is because that we're kind of on the same page about a lot of this stuff. You know, in terms of um, bringing in real-world stuff, you know, to, to, to try to enrich it. Um, but. I, I, I guess uh, along those lines, um, uh, when we, when you have iwi terms like like we mentioned, Zosla Halawa, is that based on any particular real language that you're getting things from, or not in the case of iwi? Because my idea. Of about the iwi which i think we're on the same page about this is that um, with legendary stuff the iwi really did whatever else is true or not true the iwi really were in the hollow earth and they came up um and you know there are tons and, and as i show there are tons and tons of legends like that in the world about people emerging the people i worked most closely with the choctaw are constantly that's one of their major things that they emerge from the earth and and I've been into the cave that they emerged from. You know, it's kind of kind of scary actually. But um, <clears throat> um, so in the case of the Iwi, I'm I'm assuming that they really aren't very closely related to um, any other human group nearby, and that their language is quite different, with the exception of um, you know there is like a Polynesian element that was introduced and. Um, one of the graphic novels, but, um, and that would make sense because they're in that area, you know, where mm-hmm. the Polynesians could actually bump into that. But uh, in general, I, I felt that the Iwi, one thing I really, really liked about Kongskull Island was the way that the natives were portrayed as the best, most respectful treatment that the, the Skull Island natives have ever gotten. I agree. Yeah, it, that, it was it was it was a much needed update. Yeah. <laughs> from... I would say the second best treatment they've ever gotten was in the original um, King Kong versus Godzilla. Maybe. Yeah, um, they're they're still kind of rubes that are falling for. Have you seen that? Oh yeah, yeah yeah. So so that yeah, they're still like oh it's a radio. What is that? You know, and, oh these cigars. What's that? But. But they're also not, they're not shown to be like, uh, you know, like as much as I liked some things about the Jackson version of King Kong, those were just like leftover orcs or something. Right, right, like yeah. His, his villagers, it was just beyond the pale. I mean, it was just like, what are you doing here, man? Yeah, no, um, I, I mean, <laughs> I, it, I, I think the, the Skull Island natives, is all, that's always been the most problematic aspect yeah, of the yeah. Kong movies and I, I felt like the, the the that most recent version was definitely the a, a, a pretty decent update. I'm glad yeah, they did it way, that way. Yeah, a cut way above the, and it's sort of that reversal of the idea too that they're not hiding from Kong. Kong's I mean, they're hiding from these other things and Kong's helping them out but you know there were just a lot of things that kind of got turned around there but I was really happy not to see it was just another um portrayal of the this 
weird savage. Yeah, the racist stereotypes yeah. and, you know, yeah. <laughs> with the... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, fact, I'm, I'm though, with you. I will say this, in fact, you know, I mean, so I'm still, you know, I'm like 48 years old, and I've, I've, um, I still occasionally catch myself falling into a trap that, that I shouldn't be falling into. And working on the, the novelization of um, Godzilla vs. Kong, I was calling them the Iwi tribe, and actually the person they had doing the copy editing on that, she's like, are you really comfortable using this term right now? And I thought about it, I was like, no, I'm really not. So if you actually go through and read that, at no point do I call them a, a tribe. I just talk about the Iwi people. Um, I talk about them like a, an extended family, but the word tribe has actually started to acquire well, it's always had baggage mm-hmm. and and lately it's gotten a lot of baggage right. and it's a colonial term right that kind of implies something different like they're mm-hmm. different from us they're a tribe we're a civilization yeah yeah um but anyway uh interesting um but I, I digress <laughs> uh well i was wondering and i don't even know if there's an answer to this figured i'd ask uh, both the movie and the book uh, for Godzilla vs. Kong mention two Ghidorah heads operating Mechagodzilla. One that Ren sits in and another one inside Mechagodzilla. But uh, I was just wondering, because we, we, we definitely see the one head at the end of King of the Monsters that Charles Dance buys. Um, it, did, is there? Do you have any idea or any any kind of head cannon of your own as to where the second head came from i actually don't um you know i think i, I do make it clear that that um that he had both of them mm-hmm. like that he buys both from the from the dance character um but in terms of where the other one came from i i can't tell you okay yeah i've even that. like <laughs> went back to certain scenes and i'm like no i'm pretty sure i saw the heads disintegrate <laughs> but you know um uh, i know one of them did yeah um, i i'd have to go back but anyway but i just in that case in that particular instance um it was in the movie it was in the script so yeah that you know i just did it um the other thing with king Ghidorah that i want to ask uh is in the book there there seems to be uh some hesitancy on the part of Mark Russell uh, in, I guess, buying into Ghidorah being an, an alien creature. Um, was that another choice that, that you made? And, if you know, if so, what, what do you feel are the implications of him maybe calling that into doubt? Well, it, it, you know, in that particular case, I'm just thinking about what Mark might be thinking. Right? Yeah, and there's evidence. Looking at evidence that maybe this thing isn't like the others, right? Um, but it, it, but as as crazy as the whole thing is for him, that maybe is a step too far because I've, we've, clearly we've got a planet full of kaiju. So why do we have to explain this when it's having come from somewhere else? Mm-hmm. It's it, I guess for him it's not a parsimonious explanation, um, and. Then there's, you know, and I'm and I'm clearly very aware of of, of Ghidorah's history and the other movies, uh, but to be honest, I don't, I actually don't know where he comes from in the MonsterVerse. So that's that's a nod to that idea, without 
making a commitment to it because I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's fair, you know, and I, and I, I like that that idea of, you know, having these characters be be unsure about that. You know, we were talking earlier about how uh, lamentable the the ninety eight uh, Godzilla movie is, but the the novelization that was written for that film, which I actually cannot remember the name of the the author at the moment. But one of the things that is fun in the novelization is that you don't see in the 98 film is because the 98 film never really says where that version of Godzilla comes from, is that he has the three scientist characters of Nick, Audrey, and Mendel constantly Mm -hmm. arguing about that throughout the book, where, like, you know... Uh, one of them thinks it's a mutation. One of them thinks it's a dinosaur. Another one thinks that that's ridiculous because dinosaurs are all extinct. So right, right. Yeah, I mean, you want some ideas out, and, and again, especially when you're in, 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 in something that's connected to so many other movies and books and so forth as, as the MonsterVerse is. You, you, I think fans expect these issues to be raised, but they're only going to get answered when the people that make the movies decide they're ready to be answered does that make any sense yeah that does and, and that sort of that sort of leads in into a, a question um if i can skip ahead of you for a second kevin um because i think that yeah i think that leads into this which is uh so I, I know you might you might be biased here but that is something that like fans get into arguments about sometimes is like you know people will bring up you know, like with Godzilla versus Kong, for example, this happened just recently. Uh, you know, with me, I was talking to some people uh, who I know online, and they were saying, you know, yeah, I liked Godzilla versus Kong, but it's got all of these plot holes in it. And I and I was like, well, what plot holes? And they they made a list, and then I said, you know, every one of these is answered in the novelization. And they went, well, that doesn't count. That's not real. And and so I'm just curious, where do you? as somebody who's actually involved in this come down on that issue of like are things like novelizations and tie-in comics should they be thought of as canon or or not uh that's such a good question because i can definitely think of of instances and when in which they're clearly not okay i mean i I, i've i've read and as as i'm sure you have um where for whatever reason the, the contradictions are are too big right um but uh, in turn, in that in that specific instance, like the only thing that counts is what's in the movies. I guess that's a personal choice. I mean, um, I, I, I guess it's a, a you know that this is definitely something I ran into like a lot with Star Wars. There's so many books. There's way more books than there are movies. Um, and so, where is the center of gravity of of the Star Wars universe that is in the in the movies, probably actually, but for a lot of fans, no. Um, it's it's you know a lot of people are quite pissed off when the books are um, contradicted in a big way, like they were when the prequel novels, uh, prequel movies came out. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, I guess I'm invested personally in in making it part of the same universe. So for me. My book it, it does count because I know that everything in it. Um, well, um, the vast majority of what's in it jibes with the movie. It fits into places where um, uh, things are missing or need a little bit better explanation or could use a little better explanation. 
and I also know that um, it was vetted real hard. Like, there's very little that's in there that that was not scrutinized several times by a number of different people that are involved in the whole thing. Does that mean that the, in the next movie they they might make change their mind about something that then outdates something that's in my book? No, that could still happen. Um, and it, but you know, and, and that's not really my concern. You know, I've done what I can do, mm-hmm. and if you know, if I'm asked to write another book, I'll do what I can do there. Um, but in terms of whether things outside of the movies, I mean, that's just goes to the question of canon, and that's a that's a personal choice, I think, ultimately. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think personally, I mean, I think it's it's kind of fun. You know, I mean, it makes me think of that whole sort of you know literary game that kind of got invented with you know like the sherlock holmes stories mm-hmm. back in the day of like you know how do we you know reconcile all of this you know how what, what happens when you find you know uh doyle referring to watson by like two different names and two different stories how do you how do you make sense of that and and you know i mean i mentioned earlier i i've done a lot of research and writing into you know the the uh, what I felt was, to a large extent, the kind of untold story behind the writing of the original uh, King Kong novelization from the 30s by Delos W. Lovelace. And there are things in that novelization that contradict what ended up in the 33 film because he was working off of an earlier version of, of the script. Like in that novelization, uh, he has Denham say his famous line, it was beauty killed the beast from the top of the Empire State Building rather than down on the floor. On the ground. In, okay. On the ground. But what was what was really fun for me about that was then subsequently discovering, um, you know, the famous science fiction writer, um, uh, and I'm, I think I'm going to mess up his name, but uh, um, Philae Jose Farmer. Philip, um, yeah, Philip Jose Phil, Farmer. Yeah, Philip Jose Farmer wrote a, a short story called After King Kong Fell, which was nominally him trying to answer the question of, well, wait a minute, what did they do with the body? You know, you've got this big gorilla <laughs> now, you know, dead on the street. What did, what did they do with that? But one of the things that he did was he went and he reconciled those contradictions. And it's really easy to do because he's just like, well, Denim is such a consummate showman. Of course he would come up with this line on top of the Empire State Building and then run down there to say it in front of the press. And, and say know? it again, yeah. Well, yeah. He, it, you know, actually, Phil Farmer's really, I don't know how much of his stuff is you've read. And he's somebody I would have, if I thought more carefully, would have mentioned much earlier. He was a huge influence on me. Hmm. Um, and he was really, he loved that. I mean, he loved, I mean, he wrote books about, you know, tying everything, like Tarzan to, to Doc, uh, Savage. Doc Savage. Yeah. To like, yeah, I mean, that was the world he lived in. And um, it, he, he's written, you know, as a stylist, he's not amazing. But in his, but his storytelling and his ideas, uh, I mean, I, I if there's something he wrote that I haven't read, I don't know what it is, because I at some point went through everything I could find by him. Um, unfortunately, never quite got to meet him. I mean, we did overlap a little bit, but by the time I was going out to conventions and things like that, he was not. Um, but yeah, I loved loved his stuff. Yeah. And and you're right. I mean, that's he had that impulse. I would say before fandom really picked it up in a lot of ways. Um, 
you know, and, 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 you know, before fan fiction was the kind of thing it is now where people are themselves trying to work out those contradictions, you know, or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, that, that can be quite fun. It can be also kind of frustrating <laughs> and it's definitely, it's, it's definitely the thing, the kind of thing that you can get in an argument with somebody about, um, are you familiar with the Marvel's No Prize? Yes. Yeah. A, <laughs> I, yeah I, I, I kind of wonder if they could outsource some of these some of these solutions to fandom sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I definitely grew up. Excuse me, reading Marvel comics back in the day. Um. Well, I guess talking about uh, I guess in in this uh, this this arena here. Um, there's uh, a few things that, you know, just looking at people's reactions and comments on the internet, um, there does seem to be some confusion over certain elements, and I figured it uh, might be interesting and fun to kind of hear from the horse's mouth uh, where you are on this. For example, um, so you did the Godzilla Dominion comic book, but there was also the Kong one, Kingdom Kong, Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I guess people have interpreted the ending of that to show, uh, the Iwi being rescued and escorted off of Skull Island, whereas the movie and, uh, your material is a little bit more set in, no, you know, they, they, they were wiped out. Uh, do you have, uh, a particular, um, I guess, view of, of what, happened to all of them and if any of them were rescued or escorted away well i, I uh, there is it's not a big bit but i do address that a little bit in in the novelization um in in having the um uh what's her name the, the scientist character uh the the kong whisper eileen yeah yeah, yeah eileen. um she uh talks about how they tried to rescue him and it didn't go well so uh, yeah, I mean, I that was that when I read the Kong, and again, I, I didn't see that as a completed comic. I saw it as a script, and um, and so we were. I wasn't working with them. I was not in communication with them at mm-hmm. all. But I did get a hold of the script, um, and by that time, I knew in the movie that they were they were basically all dead. Yeah, at least from as as far as Eileen knows, they're all dead. Um, and, uh, so I guess I, I, I did do a little tiptoe around that just in that, like, we're, yeah, we're trying to evacuate them, um, but, uh, or we were trying to evacuate them, but things went bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and some, and, and also I think there's some, uh, at least an implication that a lot of them resisted, that they didn't want to yeah. go someplace else. Okay. Um, and who knows, you know, it, it, at this point, we think they're all dead, um, but yeah. you know it's possible. And some of them went someplace. So. The other one that I was a little surprised to see <laughs> debated as much as it was um, is some confusion over whether there were Kongs that had driven Godzilla out of the Hollow Earth, or if Godzilla had drove the Kongs out or wiped them out. Um, where and and uh, you know who whichever character that fan likes is going to find ways to put one narrative in in front of the other where where do you where where would you say is the the definitive line there 
I mean, I think it's I think it's more of a case that they there was a war of attrition. They both sort of lost, right? Um, that whether whether Godzilla was driven out of the Hollow Earth or he chose to leave, or he found the way up, you know, that's something I can't really speak to. It's not really how I saw it, though. I mean, in this very specific case um, of um, in Dominion, like where Kong is looking for his old haunt, like his his one his one place is blown up, so he's thinking, oh, but there was this place when I was really young or younger, anyway, that I got driven out of. So in that particular storyline, if it's not clear, you know what happened was a Kong or several Kong pushed him out of there when he was younger and weaker. Um, and then Tiamat comes along, kills him, <laughs> kills the Kong. And so when he comes back, he's looking to face a Kong, uh, but instead he ends up facing Tiamat. Now, in terms of the larger conflict, you know, even if, if, if we don't say that there's a Godzilla species, clearly there are other very Godzilla-like creatures that were engaged in this. It wasn't just this. I mean, you've got if in the other comics, you know, you've got the one that they're calling Dagon. Um, you've got the the fossil one that that's in the first Godzilla movie that Sarazawa is looking at. You know, so there there's definitely more of these Kong-like, I mean, not Kong-like, Godzilla-like monsters. And it's assumed that there were quite a few in Kong's tribe, and I think the implication is, the way I read it, is that they essentially wiped each other out, and why both of them ended up on the surface, you know, I think that's just a story that hasn't been told, and I don't know the, the answer to it, but um, the, the hollow earth has barely been touched, I mean, as far as we know, there could be a huge colony of, of Kong species hundred miles from where they were and there could be more you know giant Godzilla forms roaming around as well so it's just something we don't know at this point mm. but I mean the, I think the, the hollow earth my feeling is is a hell of a lot bigger than what we saw right yeah <laughs> so <clears throat> uh, so do you have any involvement with the uh, audiobook productions based on your novels my only involvement with that is telling them how to pronounce things. That's and, and sometimes they didn't quite get that right anyway. But, <laughs> but I did my best, you know. I, I uh, because I wasn't. It was basically writing things out or using IPA to just transcribe it. Or the one that I, I haven't heard the whole audio book. The one I noticed most, like right away, is in the the first chapter when. Um, the guys are on the oil rig. The guy's name should be Mosh with a soft CH rather than Mach mm. with a hard CH, but it's, it's not a big deal. But um, why is there is there something that stands out? Uh, I I've noticed that the ones that I've I've listened to based on your work tend to be pretty good, but I've definitely listened to other audiobooks where. You know, people will say Mecha instead of Mecca or something like that, and I can I can say uh, it's appreciated when they can pronounce things correctly. Well, I did. I mean, I took, they asked me to do it. They said, mm -hmm. you know, could you could you please sit down with these terms and explain how to pronounce them? And I did my best. You know, I I would give examples. It sounds like this in English. You know, like 
Um, uh, and since there are a lot of quotes from real languages, like uh, one we went actually round and round the most on was uh, there's a, a bit of a, a prayer in Choctaw. Well, Choctaw is the language I actually know. It's, you know, it's the people I've worked with. But there are like five different alphabets that are used to write Choctaw or have been used over the years. And so um, uh, the copy editor, who was really, really, really sharp on a lot of things, did some kind of Google search. And she's like, well, I don't think you're spelling this right in Choctaw. And I'm like, okay, listen. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I did have to explain how it ought to be pronounced. You know? And there are dialects of Choctaw, too, so they're not all pronounced the same anyway. But, um, but uh, that's another thing I'm kind of a geek about is languages. So uh, when I'm asked to do something like that, I take it seriously. Well, um, I think we just have like that last couple wrap-up sort of questions. So something I, I wanted to ask was uh, if you know we uh, the the future of the MonsterVerse um, seems to be a little bit unknown. There's a lot of rumors and things uh, flying around about you know them doing a, a Kong series on Netflix or getting Adam Wingard back to do a sequel or something. But um, and and I. I don't know if, if this is something or if, if it even is, if you could tell us. But just presuming that Legendary came back to you and they were like, you know, we would like to continue the MonsterVerse, but just as a series of novels, like the Star Wars Expanded Universe or something. Is there a, is, would, would that be something you would want to do? Are there stories that you would still like to tell in this universe if you were just kind of given free reign like that, more or less? Oh yeah, absolutely, and uh, and I, you know, I would say that um, that I, at this point I don't know any more about the future of the MonsterVerse than you do. I mean, I, it hasn't been discussed with me um, at the time that I, I mean, I, I still communicate with them about publicity stuff and that kind of thing, and about, but um, in terms of big picture, you know, I think a lot of that was up in the air before the movie was released, um, and I think now they're kind of recalibrating. And like you, I've heard a lot of things that, that sound kind of interesting. Um, uh, and I would absolutely be interested in, and since they've got their own publishing arm, they're talking about doing novels, it's, it's not impossible that they would start a series. You know, I think it would be fun, for instance, to do a series of Hollow Earth books that were set 100 years ago, 200 years ago, you know, that, that kind of go back to that kind of Pellucidar, kind of the... the fictional and um, scientific, I guess, origins of the whole idea that that would be kind of fun to play around with, with something that that connected to the MonsterVerse, but in another time and place um, with different characters. But it would also be fun to just sort of continue what's going on down there right now, like what happens with, with Kong and Lind and all those people. Um, you know, I think... Uh, I'd love to do it. I'd be, I would be interested in doing it. Um, I think that I've gotten a pretty good shot at this universe, and there are probably other writers that deserve a shot at it too, and that could probably bring stuff to it that I can't. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to be ticked off if that happens either. Um, of course, so, yeah. Yeah, so I'm just kind of waiting. I'm just kind of waiting. Uh, and, and meanwhile, I'm working on stuff, you know. So, I mean, I'm always working. But, uh, yeah, the Nostroverse is definitely a place that I'd, I would not mind hanging out in a bit more. 
so having having you know worked on a, on a couple of novelizations of, of movies, uh, it, would you you know want to maybe see something in a flipped direction where some of your original works are adapted into film? And uh, if, if so, are there certain ones that you'd like to see more than others? Um, that's a good question. Well, I mean, I think that every author views that kind of um, opportunity in two ways, right? It would be really fantastic in, in that uh, if it were well done, it would be really cool. It would be like we were talking about earlier about seeing your idea transform into another form and thinking, oh, it's so cool the way they did that. Um, and, and also, there's a lot of money involved, and that's nothing to sneer at either. Um, so that's on the plus side. And on the minus side, there's always the, the worry that they could just do it horribly poorly. Um, sure, but um, I would definitely be willing to take that that chance. And it's and you know once that is in uh, a studio's um, and once they've acquired your film rights, unless you're like J.K. Rowling, you rarely get a lot to say about it. So you just kind of have to kind of hope things go well. But I'm, I would definitely be willing to, to take that chance. In terms of what I think is most cinematic, the, the, my problem is that I've written mostly my own stuff has been mostly. Um, you know, three and four book series, but I think um, so. I, I would almost say that I would almost rather see a lot of them adapted the way they did Game of Thrones, or um, mm. or at <laughs> least more like sort of the the, the Marvel, you know, like uh, WandaVision or something like that. Something that's got a little more space than just a movie. Um, but I think the 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 Age of Unreason books, I think, would make pretty good television or movies. You know, they're they're set in a world that we sort of know. You know, the 18th century. It's got characters we sort of know, like Ben Franklin, um, and doing wildly crazy things that never actually happened. Um, uh, the Kingdoms of Thorn and Bone, I think, you know, again would would be best adapted as kind of a, a, te- a television thing, like Game of Thrones. Um, but I've done a couple of standalone novels, and then the, what I'm working on right now, um, which is something that started off as, uh, I, I guess I thought when I started it was going to be a young, young adult, adult novel, but it really did not at all go that way, um, which is the um, the High and the Far Away series. It's, again, a, it's the only portal novel I've ever done, which is a, a novel where the characters start in our world and end up in some you know, crazy land. But... Um, but yeah, I've, I've never set out to just write a book that I thought this would just translate into a good movie. So um, I think it could be done, but I think um, I'm not sure exactly how I would do it. If somebody offered me the chance to do it, then I would think about it. But cool. Do you have a favorite of your novelizations? Um, boy, I mean, well, I've only done three. Okay, I, d- I did um, um, Interstellar, and in terms of novelizations, I've only done three. I did Interstellar, I did Godzilla vs. Kong, and I did um, Godzilla: King of the Monsters. Of the three of those, I really think um, Godzilla vs. Kong is the one I'm most proud of. I, I, I for me, 
everything clicked in, in a in a really good way with that book. Even though I was mm -hmm. also pretty happy with Godzilla King of the Monsters. Interstellar was a fairly um, strict interpretation. They didn't want a lot of extra stuff in that. And, you know, they didn't want a, a lot of added material. And what was there was, you know, good. I liked the movie and I didn't mind just interpreting it, but I didn't get to do a lot, I guess, compared yeah. to the, the two legendary novels. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to flesh out in Godzilla vs. Kong, so... Yeah, there was a lot to do there, and it was it was, and a lot of it was really fun stuff to do, and it was um, uh, there was I didn't spend a lot of my time banging my head about it. It was a lot of it was you know seemed fairly straightforward. So, uh, well, we're as we're you know kind of winding down and wrapping up. Um, what would you, uh, is there any kind of advice you might give to any young writers out there? Well, so the way I got started was, was by writing. You know, I, I, I heard some advice. I want to say it was, I asked them off or Highland or somebody, I can't remember exactly who said this. But they said you have to write, you have to finish what you write, you have to send off what you've written after a small amount of editing and try to get it published and then you have to forget about it and write something else and that's exactly what I did I I set myself a goal of writing a novel a year and I would write it I would fiddle with it for a few months get it what I thought was good send it off to be published and then start on something else um, I tend to caution against rewriting the same book for 10 or 15 years because at a certain point it doesn't get better it just gets different especially if you're not working with an editor, you know. Um, but all that said, I didn't sell my first novel or my second novel or my third novel. It was my fourth novel I sold. So hanging in there, there's something to be said for it. But um, I think it's a good idea to keep moving on, to keep writing new stuff. I often get asked, and this is probably an important thing to talk about in this kind of discussion, um, people tend to think of me people often ask me how I got my fan fiction published. And while I guess you know, the answer I gave to saying that I was interested in working in the MonsterVerse makes it seem a little more like that, what I do um, and there's nothing wrong with fan fiction. Fan fiction's great, but you're never going to sell it um, on spec. You're never going to write fan fiction and have um, uh, a publisher buy it and publish it or very rarely will that happen. Okay, it's not likely to happen. So anything I've ever written for a franchise, ultimately I've been asked to do it, um, contracted to do it, paid to do it. Um, so while I understand the impulse to write fan fiction, obviously because I've written for all these um, these properties, um, that's not likely how you're going to break into things as an author. You know, I would say take the ideas that you have that you're putting in your fan fiction put your own twist on it, do something different with it, write your own thing, you know, and then if you, what you really want to do is write Star Wars, you might eventually get asked to, but you're probably going to have to publish a few things first. All right. Um, well, you know, before we head out of here, is there anything you have uh, coming out soon or anything that uh, you'd like to promote? 
Well, I mean, uh, all my books are in print in one form or the other, so um, I'm always happy you know, when I get new readers who tell me, oh, I, you know, I've never read The, the Waterborne or The Black Ot, which were my first novels. Um, if I had to really push something right now, I'm excited about this, the High and Far Away series that I'm writing. It's the newest thing. Um, like I said, it's sort of a portal fantasy, it, it, but it also draws a lot on like folklore and mythology that I've been working with my whole life. And you know, essentially, the, the the premise at the very beginning is that this boy who essentially tried to commit suicide um, wakes up in a a wooden body, and uh, with the weird girl from school, and um, she tells him he has to do some stuff for her. And it kind of goes on from there. Hmm. But um, I'm finishing up the third book in that. There's three of them. And this is the, the you know, the final one. So Okay, cool. Uh, so that would be the High and the Far Away. The first book is called The Reign of the Departed. And Reign is spelled R-E-I-G-N of the Departed. All right. Well, you heard it, people. Keep an eye out for that. And finally, uh, Greg, before we depart, um, where can people find you online uh, if they want updates and uh, kind of see what you're working on? Well, I have a web, uh, I have a website. I think it's just GregKeys.com. I'm not. I'd actually have to look that up. <laughs> but um, it's been it, uh, jgregorykeys.com. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, okay, yeah. Jay Gregory Keys. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> Jay Gregory Keys was was my my real name. My full name is John Gregory Keys. And there's kind of a funny story how I ended up as Jay Gregory, but it didn't last that long. My first few novels were published under that name. Um, uh, I'm also on Instagram under Greg Keys One, I think, and a lot of kaiju fans have already found me there. Um, and I'm on Facebook, so <coughs> I may or might may not friend you, depending. But uh, <laughs> my my page is, is is public, so you can pretty much see what's there. Okay. And you can definitely message me. So, and I try to answer, you know, as much as I can. I try to answer what I get from on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. All right. Well, Greg, this has been awesome. I mean, you've been super generous with your time. Um, and, you know, we've we've had a really good time chatting with you. So thank you so much again uh, for... All right. Thank you, guys. It's for, been great. Yeah, for, for yeah, taking the time. Has. Yeah, it's it's been a pleasure. So um, uh, people out there, uh, check out Greg's work. Like he said, everything's in print. And uh, keep an eye out for uh, for the things he's got coming up. Have a good night. All right, you too. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.